Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. In the 11th season of this podcast, we'll be exploring some great works of literature that have something to impart to us about the nature, importance, and dangers of beauty. Okay, so check out Nietzsche's New Year's resolution. I want to tell you what I've wished for myself today. I want to learn more and more to see as beautiful what is necessary in things. Then I shall be one of those who make things beautiful. Amor fati. Let that be my love henceforth. I don't want to wage war against what is ugly. I don't want to accuse. Looking away shall be my only negation. And all in all, someday, I wish to be only a yes-sayer. Wow, couldn't we all use a few more resolutions like that? This is the wisdom of. And this is episode four, the Old Testament's Song of Songs. If, if we look at the Bible as a whole, I don't know how much narrative cohesion it has. I won't, in, I won't even get into the, the, the seemingly unmotivated character change of, of God from the original, you know, the uh, Old Testament to the New Testament. But I can say this much, that at least maybe the Bible has something for everybody. Where would uh, heavy metal lyricists of the 80s be without the Book of Revelations? Uh, Alex, uh, the main character from A Clockwork Orange, a complete sociopath or a psychopath, I'm not really sure about the difference. He even found joy in the big book. He loved the idea of being one of the Roman soldiers torturing Jesus, amongst other uh, appalling bits of nastiness. Homophobes certainly zero in on one particular line from the, the good book, despite not really finding much else to live their lives by. Sounds like I'm just being a jerk, being negative, but if I get positive for a moment, some of the most humble people out there find deep inspiration in the Bible. Never mind uh, wisdom of superstar Fyodor Dostoevsky or even Tolstoy, mining it for what they believe to be the deepest of truths. But one thing that wouldn't be front of my mind 
is that the Bible maybe can be for lovers. Yet here we are, the Song of Songs. Yeah, imagine that, the Bible, a book for lovers. Like you said, not the first thing that comes to mind when you think of that austere holy book, right? But hey, prepare to be surprised. Okay, but before we get to the the real interesting stuff, first, and as usual, a brief summary. So, the Song of Songs is one of the shortest books of the Bible. But at the same time, it's also got a very large and unique vocabulary of the sort that can't be found anywhere else in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's often grouped in as one of the so-called wisdom books, alongside the Book of Job, Ecclesiastes, and a few others. The Song of Songs is basically a collection of love poems spoken to each other by a young man and a young woman. It's a unique book within the Old Testament for many reasons, not the least that in it there's no reference to God. The Song of Songs is undoubtedly one of the greatest and most beautiful love poems ever written. As a a confirmed heathen lumbering around my apartment, I, I don't run into too many really handy Bibles. So to prep for this episode, I stumbled across a complete reading of the Bible by famous actor uh, David Suchet, a guy most famous for his iconic performance as Agatha Christie's greatest character, Hercule Poirot. Uh, Appreciate that great accent there. It's a little foreshadowing. We'll come back in a bit. But Poirot, he was this idiosyncratic Belgian private detective that could seemingly solve any mystery. So if I had the chance to hire him, my mystery would be this. What the heck is this doing in the Bible? More importantly, what is this even about? Man, you're right. That is an awful French accent. But let's pretend that didn't happen and just get right to those questions. So one, what on earth is the meaning of this story or poem? And two, how the heck did it ever get into the Bible? Right, so let's start with the meaning question first. So, what is the meaning or nature of this very strange love story or poem? I mean, probably no other book in the entire Bible has given rise to more interpretations than Song of Songs. So, it's not easy. But basically, many have read it as a kind of metaphor, and others as a a kind of allegory. That's to say, some have taken the love between the young male and the female as a metaphor for, for God's love for Israel. And others, most famously uh, the Christian scholar Oregon, have construed it as an allegory celebrating Christ's love for his church. In fact, you know what? It's interesting. Oregon, who, who wrote an incredible 10 volumes on it, is actually quite concerned with this poem. I mean, he expresses his fear that the untrained reader may see in it nothing but desire and sex, and so as an invitation to debauchery, to a turn away from spirit to flesh. Actually, he even goes so far as to issue a warning to those who are young and vital and who haven't read it yet. He says, I advise everyone who's not yet rid of the vexations of flesh and blood and who has not yet ceased to feel the passion of his bodily nature, 
to refrain from reading this little book. Now, it's hard not to see some major anxiety permeating his counsel here, right? That is, he just seems to feel abhorred and threatened by the possibility that a holy book in the Bible could be in any way encouraging secular love and so possibly lead the reader to lusts of the flesh. And actually, I think this is why he's so anxious to rid the Song of Songs of any interpretation which takes it in this sensual direction. In other words, this is why he tries so hard to interpret it allegorically, because he wants to make it come out entirely spiritual. So, for Oregon, this is no meeting of young lovers. No, it's, it's really a, a mystical meeting between Christ and the Church. Gone is the male-female relationship. Gone is the sensual imagery. And gone is all eroticism. But the truth of the matter is that this sort of interpretation is somewhat disingenuous. It's to do away with the, the literal sense of the text. And we should keep in mind that although there's always a, a kind of surplus of meaning and interpretation to all texts, the basic literal sense is still very important. I mean, sure, it's always possible to, I don't know, to, to dive into the ocean of speculation. It's a boundless and a bottomless one. So why not instead sometimes just look at what's actually in front of us to take the text at face value? So I guess what I'm saying here is that there's no lock here to this poem to which the key has been lost. No, the key is in our very own relatable passions and desires for the beauty and the splendor of another human being. In other words, the best way to see the Song of Songs, is just to let loose our own very similar emotions and accept it for what it appears to be, which is an erotic, sensual, lyrical love poem, which celebrates not only the beauty of another person, but the incorruptible fidelity of a relationship. And we have to keep in mind, too, that, that parts of this poem were, were set to music and sung. So, simply put, the poem's a, a veritable love song. And in this way, it's unlike most books in the Bible. I mean, it's not like the book of Job, where the, where the writer describes the life and death struggle of a man to keep his faith in a just God. Nor is it like Ecclesiastes, where the, where the writer attempts to solve the riddle of existence with all its paradoxes. No, the Song of Songs isn't really doing anything like this. It's not communicating ideas or forming characters or examining great human problems. And in it, there's no disillusionment. It's just expressing the simple love and longing of two lovers to each other. It's celebrating the joy of life, where love and beauty is the supreme manifestation of that joy. Well, Okay, so all this might raise an important question. That is, it might raise the, the question, your question actually. How it is such a, a secular work with such explicit eroticism could have been included in the Old Testament? That sacred holy book? In other words, given its racy nature, how do you explain its inclusion in the biblical canon? Well, 
Actually, I think it's maybe because the ancient Hebrews were pretty realistic and earthy in their attitudes. And so they weren't prudish when it came to accepting physical love. Actually, physical love was just as natural and a part of life as any other function was. And to boot, it was, of course, God-given and therefore holy. In other words, God made humans and he made them in part to make love. I mean, in the story of Genesis, God creates the, the world and he says it was good. And then he creates Adam and Eve and says that they should be fruitful and multiply. Well, so then maybe the Song of Songs is basically an extension of the Genesis concept of the intrinsic goodness of creation and therefore of sexuality. If that's true, then Oregon was way off. He was as far away from the lush and beautiful Garden of Eden as one could possibly get, which is really what this poem might be all about. I've, I've had an obsession going all the way back to my school days, way back in the 20th century. It's a weird one, a phrase, a, a French phrase at that, one that is guaranteed to annoy at least two people, but absolutely delight everyone else. It's, qu'est-ce qui se passe dedans le dindon? To me, it flows so nicely. It, it sounds darn right beautiful. In case you don't speak French or overwhelmed by my take on a French accent, I'll translate. It means what's happening or what's going on inside the turkey. Kind of loses something. The mellifluous beauty is gone in the translation. In French, I, I can imagine it spoken by uh, some kind of solemn character in a, in a Truffaut film, naturally, in black and white. And he's contemplating the nature of knowledge while looking at a particularly existential, winged but earthbound creature. He then mutters to himself and to an unhearing God, Qu'est-ce qui se passe dedans le dindon? In English, it makes me think of some sort of awful, angry Thanksgiving preparation dealing with a disgusting giblet sack or something like what's happening inside the turkey. It just goes to show that the beauty of words can be quite distinct from, I don't know, just their meaning. Wow. Another interesting one, to say the least. This time, I was really convinced that you weren't coming back from that one. But again, I got to admit, you, you somehow pulled it all together at the end. Okay, so let's explore this connection between words, meaning, and beauty, as it relates, of course, to this poem. So, the Song of Songs is one of the most amazing pieces of love poetry in world literature. In it, absolutely everything is enhanced and beautified and given a vibrancy. I mean, the first thing that stands out is how love and sex is described. That's to say, it describes those things in completely poetic rather than in prosaic terms. It does it in rich imagery and sensuous language, not matter-of-factly. Now, there's something really refreshing about this, isn't there? I mean, today, everything seems to be about the, the technical or the instructional aspects of love. And that, well, it obviously debases it somewhat. Actually, I, I find it somewhat ironic that there have been so many interpreters, like Oregon, 
who insist that there must be some spiritual message in the poem that exceeds the merely earthly theme of human sexuality. This is so strange to me because the the poetic language and description of such themes in this poem clearly invests sexuality with just this sort of spirituality. In other words, you don't need to go past the surface of the poem. You don't need to go past the natural to get a sense of love and beauty made sacred. And in connection with this, what's so interesting about this poem is the conspicuous total absence of God from the text. Actually, it's the same with another close book from the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes. There, too, God is pretty much absent. But what's so interesting about Ecclesiastes, and I would say Song of Songs, too, is just how enthusiastic they both are about paying attention to this life and to all of its transient but sacred wonders. Again, maybe the fact that God is absent in these two books is meant to suggest to us that it's possible to see a kind of spirituality or sacrality in nature without explicitly appealing to some further transcendent source to justify it. That it's all there, in the human bodies, and in the spices, grapevines, and fig trees that surround us. Okay, so another remarkable thing about the poetry here is its heavy use of figurative language, most of which are are similes and metaphors, really. Now, of course, a metaphor is something like when, when language shifts from its normal meanings to evoke new meanings by reference to something else with some sort of shared characteristic. So, for example, at one point in the poem, the lover praises his beloved by saying that she has dove's eyes. Now, of course, this isn't literally true. But what describing her eyes like this is meant to do is evoke new realms of meaning. Maybe what it feels like to see them or something. Okay, well, why am I bringing this up? I mean, poetry is full of figurative language. So, what's the big deal? Well, to me, what's particularly remarkable about this poem is how much of the imagery is drawn from nature. And more specifically even, how often the two lovers and their their body parts are compared to entities in nature. I mean, the examples are endless. Um, the young woman is a lily. Her hair is a, a flock of goats. Her breasts are fawns. And her temples are pomegranates. And her lover, well, he's an apple, a gazelle, a mountain and a cedar tree. And their lovemaking? Well, that's among other things, a vineyard and an edible fruit. Now, I think all of this is suggestive. That's to say, I think that what part of the author of the Song of Songs is saying in employing all these comparisons to nature is that to love someone, to be in love, is not just to find the immediate object of your love lovable, but to find many things about the world lovable. Love awakens your your receptivity and your senses to what's around you. It's synesthetic. So, in other words, the beauty of the lovers in the poem awakens them to the lushness of the landscape around them, to all the flora and fauna that's so often referred to. 
Their love draws into its orbit the whole of that world that they live in. That's to say, that world, perhaps, I don't know, once dimly seen by them, now lights up with beauty and significance all around them. And finally, there's one more thing I think I want to say. And that has to do with the power of language. I mean, I think sometimes we forget just how much language can affect the way that we see and experience the world. Life can be just so much more beautiful and interesting than our too often impoverished language suggests. I mean, what we don't want to talk about or bother to find words for hardly exists, right? I guess, I guess what I'm saying is that richness of language, of expression, is part of richness of experience and perception. The more elaborate and uninhibited our language, the more things will be lit up for us. And if you don't believe me, no better than to go straight to our source. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is a flock of goats. Your teeth are like a a newly shorn flock which have come up from the washing. Your temples are like a piece of pomegranate behind your veil. Your breasts are like two fawns that are twins of a roe which feed among the lilies. How much better is your love than wine? You are all beautiful, my love. I mean, is there any doubt about it? As the author of the Song of Songs clearly knew so well, a beautiful language reveals a beautiful world. Listening to the Wisdom of Podcast. If you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general, visit wisdomofpod.com. And as usual, we love to read your questions and comments. Reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on Twitter at wisdom underscore pod. Our next episode Camus. Camus. Camus Lyrical Essays. Lyrical Essays. Camus Lyrical Essays.